it's really great to see everybody sticking with the four-week class, and I'm sure you probably, hopefully, have a sense both how practical and <clears throat> transforming these different practices of the heart are, but also a sense that uh, there's a lot of work that can be done. And it's uh, probably really appropriate that we're working with equanimity the last night, especially given the events last Friday. And just generally living in this world that's hard to be open to, hard to comprehend. And uh, so much of our habit energy is feeling like it would be wise to withdraw or to somehow... I come up with an easy explanation in our mind, so this is why it's happened, you know, it's because there's no good gun, gun uh, laws in this country. And then we kind of create a boogeyman, you know, the NRA is the boogeyman, we're on the good side, or something like that, just to help us deal with that uncertainty and uh, sense of vulnerability. And this is where equanimity comes in. You probably remember over the weeks I've been saying that these four emotions that we call the Brahma Baharas, the divine abodes, or the four beautiful, boundless, immeasurable emotions. <clears throat> the whole point of thinking and then practicing these emotions is to develop the capacity to be close no matter what's going on in life. So, it's, I mean, it's relatively easy for me to have a lot of loving kindness when I'm sitting in my quiet house and nobody else is there, just me and the cat, you know, and she's in that really relaxed mood, you know, and lets me pet her. That's, I can have loving kindness in that moment. But, you know, when she's vomiting her dinner or scratching furniture or, you know, any number of other experiences, it's not so easy. So we're, we're looking at, well, what emotions actually allow us to be close no matter the experiences of our lives? And it's not so much, you know, we talk about these four emotions. It's really one emotion but that looks a little different when we're meeting suffering. That one emotion or that one way of being, it looks a particular way, which we call compassion. And when we're connecting or in the vicinity of something beautiful within our own life or somebody else's, we might call it gratitude or appreciative joy. When we're feeling a more universal connection, we might call it metta or loving kindness or friendliness. And the background of all of these beautiful emotions and something that can be practiced individually as its own emotion but is there necessarily there for all the other emotions is equanimity. I mean, imagine the experience of compassion or love or joy without equanimity. I mean, generally, that's what we call the near enemy. So in this more formal teaching that's come down in the Buddhist tradition, there's a near enemy of each of these four emotions that sort of looks like that emotion, but isn't that emotion. So for loving-kindness... Love with attachment looks like loving kindness, you know. This is often the case with our partner, with our kids, if you have kids, family members, where we're really there, we're willing to show up, 
we really want them to be happy, but we're attached. That there's some self-reference to their that desire or that wish for their happiness. Like, I need you to be happy in some level. The near enemy to compassion I mentioned already is a sense of pity. Like, I care about your suffering and I need for it to go away because it's bothering me. You know, so I'm here for you to help you get through this so you can be done with it and then it won't bother me anymore. No, it's not like we say that out loud or, or even conscious. But if we're honest and, we, and we're mindful, we'll see that tendency in our mind that somebody's suffering is bothering us. Well, that's not compassion. That might be pity or some flavor of aversion. But it's not helpful for people, and especially for people whose whatever suffering they're experiencing isn't going away. And it's like, well, I can't be with you because you're not getting better. You know, I can't, I can't handle this. And the near enemy of joy, appreciative joy, is that exuberance, which I talked briefly about last week, where we're not appreciating what is good or what is beautiful. We're kind of, we've whipped up some inner enthusiastic, expansive state, and we're, in a sense, getting lost in it. And so we're sort of getting high off of something beautiful. (coughs) But again, it's very self-referential. It's like we're feeding off of what's beautiful. As, as if somehow that goodness or that beauty refers back to me. So I'm using it to make me feel good instead of just appreciating it. This is why appreciative joy really helps overcome envy and jealousy because we realize that that person's happiness isn't adding anything to this life except we know what happiness feels like and we can intuit it there and we appreciate that they're happy because we know what happiness is like and happiness is a good thing wherever it arises. It doesn't have to arise in our heart for it to be a good thing. Anywhere happiness arises is a good thing. Wherever somebody's experiencing happiness or success or a sense of well-being, that's a good thing. And it adds, you know, it's like, oh, well, that feels good. <coughs> now, it's interesting when we look at equanimity as an emotion in and of itself. It doesn't stand out because it's this, in the same way that something that's neutral doesn't stand out. We probably had a number of unpleasant experiences today. They stand out. Maybe if we're lucky, we've had a number of pleasant experiences today. They stand out. But what doesn't stand out are all the neutral experiences that we've had today. We just don't register them. So we have to, with equanimity, we have to get interested so that we notice it, this capacity of the mind to be even, to be balanced. To, like, and it can actually be quite strong. You know, we often think of strong emotion just in terms of really liking something or really not liking something. But we can also be strongly neutral, you know. 
And this is so important, as, like I mentioned at the beginning, when life is ambiguous, which it often is, and things are uncertain, and we don't know who the good guys or the bad guys are, which end is up or down, it's really important to stay connected, because generally we tend to be averse when things are ambiguous. We like things defined. But we need to be able to open to the world as it is, and sometimes it isn't defined. It's very ambiguous. It's uncertain. It's confusing. And how can we be close to that without equanimity? See, we don't need to know whether we should be for life, this moment, as it is, before it or against it. We can connect with equanimity, like, oh, it's like this. I don't know what it is, but it's like this. The traditional phrase, <laughs> and just in terms of another person, and you can just bring somebody to mind now, like a friend or family member. And as you're reflecting on that person, you know, just having a sense of their life and what's going on in their life. And then you can just reflect on the truth that... Um, I do care about you. I care about your life. I care about your happiness. I care about the difficulties in your life. But I also understand that your happiness isn't really dependent on my wishes for you. Still, I wish for your happiness. But your happiness is much more the result of your actions, not my wishes. And this is like a hard thing for us to settle with because we want to be able to make an impact or be in control. But one of the things that mindfulness, just paying attention to life, teaches us that things come and go due to actions. You know, action in the broadest sense. And things come and go in my own life, like where I, this person, actually has some control or some effect. It's the intentions behind my actions. Intentional action, like one of the <clears throat> phrases related to equanimity in the Buddhist in the Buddhist teachings, he said something like, uh, and this is one of the five remembrances, you know, that the Buddha suggested. It actually leads to a lot of equanimity too. I'm of the nature to grow old. I have not gone beyond aging. I'm of the nature to get sick. I have not gone beyond sickness. I'm of the nature to die. I have not gone beyond death. All that I, that is dear to me, everything that I care about, will become other. Will become, you know, I'll lose it. And the last one is, just this reflection, as I've been mentioning about equanimity, that I'm heir to my actions, born out of my actions, destined to receive the fruit of my intentional actions. How I act from that, I'll receive the fruit of how I've intentionally acted in the world. A lot of people misunderstand this and, you know, kind of use it as a club to beat ourselves up. But we're really, it's really coming like, we already understand intellectually that things operate according to cause and effect. I mean, nobody, is anybody willing to get up in front of the group and say, you know, it's not true. It's a big myth. There's no cause and effect. 
We all know that things are unfolding due to cause and effect. And so, in terms of how we're experiencing this life, it also is a conditional unfolding. And the proximate or the important cause is the intention in the mind, the motivation in the mind. So when we understand this deeply, when we start to reflect on this, as we relate to each other, it really helps us get close to ourselves, be close to ourselves, be close to other people. I don't know about you, but in the 20 years I've been living with my wife, it's been a very challenging and fruitful practice for me. Because when we care about somebody a lot, and we're living with them, so we see them up close, we get to know them really well, it's really, it's not easy to figure out what to do with their suffering. You know, we can pretend we don't see it, stay distracted. We can try to fix them. Hopefully you've all learned, either those work. <laughs> Fixing our partners doesn't work. Ignoring, distancing ourselves from our loved ones doesn't work. Pretending it ain't so doesn't work. So we need some way to relate to their suffering. Like, how to be really close, willing to show up, willing to be touched by their life, without falling into denial or disconnection or control, some version of control, trying to fix, trying to get rid of, judging, blaming. And that's where equanimity comes in, because we understand that their happiness or unhappiness arises because of their actions, not my wishes. It doesn't mean our wishes aren't beautiful. They're very beautiful to have wishes for people's happiness, wishes for their well-being, Wishes that they're protected from unhappiness in their lives. <coughs> but we're also practicing seeing that things are unfolding lawfully. It's not a mistake. I'm not saying that people deserve, when they get cancer, they deserve cancer, or when they lose their job, they deserve that. But in this interdependent world where our lives really being born out of so many causes and conditions, many of which we don't really have any control over, like, you know, hurricane blowing down our house, or the corporation moving out of town, or, you know, something else happening to our partner, and so we lose our partner. Many things we don't have control over. And in a sense, the one thing, the one place this person operates is in this moment as the intentions that are arising in my mind and what I do with those intentions. So if anger arises in my mind and I have the intention to get even, how does the mind understand that intention? Does it take it personally and act on it? Or does it see, oh, that's just the intention to get revenge? And that's just something being known. And leave it alone. So equanimity is this capacity, uh, that this wisdom really, it's like a wisdom field that helps us to gaze out upon the world, which includes our own life. That includes everything, right? We gaze, we open, we feel, 
but we don't feel like, uh, you know, when we see something that we, we don't understand, we either impose some fixed notion that creates some sense of safety, we define it in some way, or we withdraw. But equanimity allows us to leave everything alone because it all makes sense now. Like we look, gaze upon our life, the whole world, and we see it's a interdependent unfolding. Everything's happening according to causes and conditions. Happiness and unhappiness unfolds according to people's intentions. What intentions have been cultivated in their mind? If they've been cultivating the intention to blame others for the difficulties they experience, then they experience what it's like to have a mind that's full of blaming. If they're always wanting things to be other than they are, if that's their intention they've been watering, reinforcing, then what they experience in life, in the future, is the mind that wants things to be other than they are, not liking the way it is. If we want to know the kind of intentions that we've been cultivating in the past, we look at the kind of intentions that arise in the mind now. Because they didn't come from nowhere. The intentions that arise in our mind, that arose in our mind today, they were set in motion by what the mind was doing previously. Where else would they come from, those tendencies? Tendencies don't drop from outer space. And in a sense, in the, in the ultimate sense, you know, there's nobody to blame because the, the fact that we've been watering or we've been reinforcing certain tendencies, that was all set in motion by, you know, our culture who brought us up. But the point is, being mindful of that, we have a, we have a possibility of making a positive change. So what equanimity does is it allows us to actually connect with this world as it is. And with equanimity, it's what really allows loving kindness to arise and compassion to arise and joy to arise. Without equanimity, those beautiful emotions of joy and compassion and basic friendliness, they can't really arise except as an imitation. Because if we're truly being friendly, kind, gentle with the present moment, it requires that we're really connected. And it's only equanimity, without equanimity, how are we going to connect? Because equanimity is the wisdom, it allows us to understand why it is this way. Because how else do we read the news like we read on Friday or heard on Friday or so many other things <clears throat> that are arising out of greed and hatred and really terrible things? How do we stay close to that? Or just all the uncertainty like around global warming or inequity? How do we stay relaxed and connected in this kind of world where we don't know what's going to happen, you know, and as much as we like to think, you know, all our friends have nice thoughts about us or partners have nice thoughts, we know that they're like us. They have all kinds of thoughts, you know. It's such, it's so stressful to live in denial. It's so peaceful to live without needing denial. You know, to be able to really land in the world we're living in and not need it to be other than it is. And it 
what allows that is equanimity and the wisdom behind equanimity that understands that whatever it's like now, it's like this because of the law, lawful interdependent unfolding. It's such a cliche to say there are no mistakes, you know, and we often feel like punching the person who says that. <clears throat> but it, it's worthy uh, cultivating that view, like as an actual view. So you're noticing whatever's arising internally in your mind, whatever's arising externally or in your body as sensation. You're understanding that given all the causes and conditions, it can't be other than what it is right now. So in that sense, it's not a mistake. It doesn't mean that anybody would prefer it to be this way. We're not saying that. But just that this is a lawful unfolding. How like the world, or, you know, how could you ever imagine saying, you know, that nature took the wrong turn? You know, the weather wasn't supposed to be this way today. You know, or, you know, this wasn't supposed to be prairie, this was supposed to be forest. You know, we don't think that way because we figure nature knows what it's doing. It's just kind of unfolding lawfully. And that same human civilization, we're not different than that. And again, it doesn't mean we're not putting a positive or a negative value on it. And that's really what equanimity is. It's taking away the positive or negative value. And that's what allows us to get close. And then when we're close, then the heart will respond with love, with compassion, with joy, depending on what we're close to. When we're close to pain and suffering, the heart responds with compassion. But that compassion is a natural expression. It isn't like, I'm trying to be good, so I'm going to be compassionate. It's what happens. It's also a natural unfolding. So tonight, you know, as we practice in a few minutes, we do 30 minutes of practice and then have a discussion afterward. One of the things to be on the lookout for, (coughs) when you start to feel, you know, we'll go through the motions of the practice, repeating the phrases, visualizing a person or people. But when you actually start to feel that movement of the heart, see if you can see it or recognize it as a natural movement. Really, as an impersonal movement. doesn't mean it's not beautiful. Compassion is beautiful, but just because it's beautiful doesn't mean it's personal. So that beauty doesn't need to sort of be self-referential. Like, I must be beautiful because that compassion is beautiful, or that kindness is beautiful, or that joy is beautiful. And then it feels like we own that beauty. That's how we destroy these emotions or prevent them from arising. The way they become immeasurable, as they're defined, you know, in the tradition, the Buddhist tradition, these are the four immeasurables, or boundless states, the four boundless states. The reason that word immeasurable or boundless is used is because when we cultivate this, we are necessarily taking the self out of the picture. So, in a way, just in a simplistic way, there's two views we can live with. Wrong view and right view. This is simplistic. So, wrong view is a view that has a self at the center. You know, this emotion is something I'm emoting. You know, I'm, I have this beautiful emotion. So it's self-referential. And then it stinks. Literally, it it feels wrong. It doesn't really, it isn't beautiful. But when the heart is actually friendly, or the mind is actually friendlier, actually compassionate, actually 
appreciates what's beautiful and joyful and good, then they, that joy, that compassion, that friendliness, it doesn't need a self. It doesn't need to be owned by anyone. It can just be a natural expression of the heart or mind. And that's what we're discovering. It's really a practice of discovery. We're discovering that these four emotions can be boundless and can be impersonal at the same time. They can be as beautiful as anything ever is beautiful and boundless, meaning there's no end. There's no place they can't go. And we don't have to own it in any way. And that really, what that does is it changes our relationship to our heart. A lot of times we have a lot of doubt in our heart because, you know, we see jealousy and we see anger and we see neediness. And, you know, we see a lot of not-so-pretty emotions a lot of the time, if we're honest. And then we begin to have doubt, like, oh, you know, at best all I can do is sort of manage this ugly monster that's just slightly inside, you know, and we you know, want to keep it caged up. Because that feels like the approach to, like, you know, avoid situations that will unleash some terrible mental pattern that we have. But when we start to do the practice and uncover these natural, boundless emotions, it changes our relationship. We realize that that monster is on the surface and what's underneath is something quite trustworthy. And it, it's a completely different strategy for life. See, one strategy is, like, uh, batten down the hatches, you know, and, like, just try to get through life without really exploding and, and ruining the relationships that you're dependent on or something like that, or being fired from work or, you know, controlling. We're controlling our animal instincts. And that's, that's a common view, like, Civilization is just our attempt to control our animal instincts. <clears throat> but what we can find is that underneath those animal instincts is this capacity for, you could say, a universal love, like a love that doesn't uh, belong to anybody. And it always sounds sentimental to talk about it, so I totally get if you're sort of rolling your eyes internally, not externally. <laughs> but... If you're interested enough to check it out, and probably many of you have had taste of it in your life, you'll discover, in fact, that the heart is capable of a love, of a compassion, of a joy that doesn't feel personal at all. And then we start having a lot of respect for what we call the heart or mind. And then, like the Buddha says, we begin to see that our problems have more to do with a, what he called a visiting defilement. He said the heart is radiant and pure, except that it's visited, you know, it's obscured by visiting defilements, by greed and hatred and denial. And so then the, then we see, or our life is all about uh, <clears throat> sort of realizing the nature of the mind, this pure, radiant nature of the heart or mind. And to do that, we have to learn not to be confused by the visiting defilements, like the doubt that might come up, oh, I can't do this, I can't sit still, so how can I do this? Instead of just doing the best we can. It's practice. 
So I'll give some instructions for the equanimity practice, but maybe you want to stretch out your legs so you'll be comfortable for a half an hour sit. Feel free to stand for a minute if you want. So, to make mistakes, to cause harm. 
So I'm asking, please forgive me for any harm that I've caused you. So find your own way, use your own words, as if you were talking with this person. Go ahead and bring another person to mind if you'd like. And it's useful to ask for forgiveness several times, not just once. When you're ready, bring to mind somebody that has harmed you, something that feels safe to bring to mind. And take the time to reflect that they also are under the influence of fear and anger, delusion and greed, and therefore it's easy for them to make mistakes. As best I can, I forgive you for the harm you've caused. I'm ready to put down this load of resentment and anger. I'm ready to forgive. So go ahead on your own.
And finally, we forgive ourselves. We forgive ourselves for all our jealousies and all the impatience, all the intoxications, the desires, addictions, in a ultimate sense, we're just trying to be happy, but in doing that, we make a lot of mistakes. So as best I can, I forgive myself for being an imperfect human being. begin with the equanimity practice. And generally with equanimity practice, <clears throat> we, we start with somebody who we know well that we have a neutral relationship with. They're not our dearest friend. They're not an enemy. It could be somebody at work that you recognize easily. don't have any real strong feelings about. Anyway, bring somebody to mind that's neutral. <clears throat> As we bring them to mind and feel the heart center, recognizing I do care about your life. I care about any pain, any difficulty. I care about your happiness and success. I care about your life. Still, this is a lawful universe. Everything unfolds according to causes and conditions, according to actions. May wisdom protect you always. May you be happy. So again, there are three parts to this phrase, but you can be creative and come up with your own. I'll repeat this one a couple more times first. So as you visualize or have a felt sense of this person, and also feel your heart, I care about your life. I care about your happiness, I care about all the difficulties, I care about your life. Still, I understand that this is a lawful universe. Everything unfolds according to causes and conditions, according to intentional actions. May wisdom protect you always. May you be happy.
care about your life, your happiness, all the difficulties that you face. I care about your life as it is. Still, I understand that this is a lawful universe, that everything unfolds, including your happiness, according to causes and conditions, according to your intentional actions. May wisdom protect you always. May you be happy. So just continue on your own. Having the sense that you're talking to this person directly, speaking right from your heart. Taking the time, no need to rush, so the words feel truthful. You're speaking words that, to you, have the feeling of being truthful.
When you feel ready, you can bring another neutral person to mind. Or you could try to bring a dear friend to mind as well. It may be more challenging to be equanimous with somebody you have deep feelings for, but you can practice. I care about your life. Still, I understand this is a lawful universe, and your happiness and unhappiness is unfolding due to causes and conditions, not my wishes. May wisdom protect you always. May you be happy. Make the effort to connect with the meaning of the words. Feel the force of the words as a simple but beautiful gift that you're offering out.
feel ready, either now or later, you can practice equanimity for yourself. I care about this life right here. Caring about the happiness, the challenges. I care about this life. Still, I understand that this is a lawful universe and that my happiness is unfolding according to causes and conditions, according to intentional actions. May wisdom protect me always. May I be happy.
practice feels strong. You can even bring difficult people to mind or groups of people, like the people you work with. Just take your time. Have a sense of caring for their lives. And then reflecting that their happiness and unhappiness is unfolding according to causes and conditions, not because of my wishes. Still, I care. May wisdom protect you always. And may you be happy.
it for the last minute or two. In any way you can, bring into mind the whole world, all these living beings, including the people here in the room with us, our friends and family. And however you can, just recognizing that I care about all of these lives. And at the same time, I understand that this is a lawful universe we live in. That our happiness and unhappiness is unfolding lawfully according to causes and conditions, according to our actions. Still, I care. May we all be protected by wisdom. May we all be happy. Time. You might want to stretch out your legs, whatever you need to do. <coughs> we'll take some time now. Be nice to hear from some people. Of course, any questions that you have about equanimity, about the phrases, <clears throat> any comments about your practice, or what I said earlier about the whole general theme of equanimity. So what comes to mind here, Vince? Um, the first half of that went smooth, but the second half, I spent way too much time uh, in what my was instructor said was thinking. How is my wish for my own happiness, my practicing to take effective action, not self-referential? How do I, mm-hmm. I run into a dilemma there and I just run around in circles? Yeah. Well, the key is just to do the practice, but just to give an intellectual answer to Vince's question. So he's, in case you didn't hear him, he was asking, how is it not self-referential? to be doing any of these four practices for ourselves. Remember that there's a real difference between the form, like what we're actually doing, and what we're aiming for, right? So we use images of a person, ourselves or another, 
we have phrases, we're feeling the physical energetic sense of the heart as we're doing that. So that's the form of the practice. But what that form can uncover is what we'd say is the actual experience of loving kindness or equanimity. That experience isn't self-referential, even though the means to realizing it involved, you know, phrases that have a sense of self. Now, you can change the phrases to be slightly less self-referential. So, I care, you know, I, I care about myself. You could say that, or you could say I care about this life. It's a little bit less self-referential. And the, but the fact is, there is love, right? And uh, what we're realizing is that the love, without the whole story of me loving you or me loving me, right? But we have to, you know, we're using the story to sort of support the scene of love or equanimity or joy or compassion as it is. So we actually have to do it, but we're interested in the experience, not in the phrases ultimately, but in the actual experience of love, or equanimity, or compassion. So remember, the phrases are skillful means. When the, any of these four practices are really strong, feel free to drop the visual image of a person or a group of people, or and drop the phrases. And then you're just meditating on loving kindness, on compassion, on joy, on equanimity itself, on the opening and upwelling of the heart in that, in what's really good and beautiful. And you can just really, that experience itself is the opposite of meditation, but you need to have some momentum to have moments where that's happening. I'm sure it occurred at least in moments for some people over the course of the last four weeks. Wouldn't it be nice to live in that place all life long? I mean, that's a beautiful aspiration. And uh, any sort of self-referential work or activity of our mind will only be counterproductive. So if in doing the phrases you're getting confused by the pronouns or confused by her or me or him, you know, then, yeah, either change the phrases or simplify them like you could just use the word love, breathing in love, exhaling love. Because sometimes depending on somebody's mind, you know, it's like some people really need a lot of, uh, like the phrases need to be more complex because it, it will bring up the feeling. Other people, it just confuses the mind. The mind gets involved in wanting to understand how this all works. Yeah, all these thoughts come to mind? Yeah, Jerry. I've been Well, what matters is the intention in the mind. 
And so, like, when you're feeling more subtle energy in the body and mind, because you've been practicing for a while, like Jerry has, then the idea with the metta is a, a flow from in to out, like an outward radiation, right? Because what we're really doing is we're uncovering a, a natural generosity of the heart, and it has an energetic feeling, like an upwelling or a radiating out or a giving away. And so that can be very useful, like to be feeling the subtle vibration or subtle sensations in that way. It's like a more subtle form, like the phrases are a grosser form, but working with the practice on that more subtle level is a more subtle form and, and ultimately more useful if you can do it. But it's, it's not enough just to feel the vibration, it's really a sense of, a sense of recognizing that that vibration is something good and giving it away. That's the whole idea. It's like finding something good and giving it away. Finding a good wish and giving it away. Finding uh, some part of the heart or mind that's willing to connect with somebody's joy or somebody's suffering or somebody just as a human being and care about that and give that away. So, yeah, that can feel... You can use that subtle experience to support the practice. And you'll feel the more you give it away, you know, the more there is. You know, and then all of a sudden, that's that boundless feeling like when we're holding, whether we're holding on to a kind of a conceptual sense of self or an energetic chi sense of self, it doesn't really matter. It's the gripping that's not skillful. But when we set it free, we move the boundaries. That makes it tough. First of all, there's going to be a lot of self-referential stuff in our practice because it's so much a part of our conditioning. So don't expect that to immediately disappear. But that's the aspiration to move away from that. And the thing is, you can, like, we all have a lot of healing we need to do in the way that you described, Tom. But that doesn't need to be self-referential. It's like, you know, if I got some unresolved pain feeling like my parents didn't kind of love me in the way that I felt I needed to be loved or something like that, you know, one of those classic empty holes that we can move through life with and then I become over time with practice, I become more aware of that tendency in my mind, in my heart to feel that empty hole, like to feel needy in that way and I start to work with it you know, maybe I practice compassion practice for myself, or I practice loving-kindness practice for myself. But I don't need to have a sense of self, because that pain, whatever it is that I'm able to touch now, because of the work I've done, you know, whatever that pain is, that's just that pain right here and now, you know? And whatever heart that is aware of that pain and cares about it, that's also here and now. So this is a natural process. 
that's happening here now. We don't need to, in a sense, step back and say, I'm finally giving myself the love that nobody else was able to give me, or something like that, or the love that I didn't get from somebody else. We don't, I mean, we might do that, and that would be totally understandable because of our conditioning to sort of create a self-referential story to explain what's going on. But we don't need that. We can do that healing work without that story, and ultimately, it's easier and deeper if we don't have a story about it. So that's that's really the point, is that it's not that to be afraid of the self-referential story, but just to see how it all works so much better when we let that go, when we go beyond it. But we don't go beyond the self-referential story by pointing our finger at it and saying, oh, you shouldn't be here. Because that's a self-referential story, too. Like, I see myself, once again, engaged in the self-referential story, and I shouldn't be. So the thing is to learn to give ourselves to something that's not self-referential. And that, by definition, is the present moment. Everything else is self-referential. The only thing that's not self-referential is an opening to things as they are. Because everything else involves, you know, something outside of the here and now, and that always involves thinking and a sense of self. So this work of loving and and caring and and appreciating and being equanimous, it's all about, it has to arrive here. Even though we use ideas like of this person who I knew that I care about, like we bring up people in our minds or we bring up ourselves in our mind. It's just a skillful means to have an experience right here and now. And when that experience is here and now and it's strong enough, we can even let go of the image of the person and the phrases. But until then, it's really useful to have an image of a person or people you're working with and phrases. But when you don't need them, let them go. And just work with the, the energy of love or compassion, a little bit like Jerry was pointing to, right in the here and now. Yeah, Mark. Hi, Mark. Uh, one thing that probably is just was, you know, using the sun and work is because of an unwelcome experience to come up like, let's say, impatience or frustration or maybe even like, oh, crap, I didn't get a lot of person. Um, but to actually direct the love and kindness toward that, you know, I care about this thing, maybe it may be at least I care about this frustration, you know, maybe yeah, that I would call that, you know, you're working with yourself on that level. But in a way, it's like, it's very immediate because there's something right there, then and there. You just have to be careful about um, controlling, like uh, controlling energy, like you're using your loving kindness to manage the difficult feelings that you have or the difficult experiences that you have. It's very useful. Like, when you have chronic pain, uh, loving-kindness is a very useful um, way of learning to be in your skin, you know, when that's the case. But you'll notice if you start, if you're <clears throat> the energy in the mind is demanding, like, may you be happy, you know, May you be at ease, or whatever we might be saying, but it's like demanding that it be other than what it is. So that's, you just have to make sure that 
your love, your compassion is a free gift without any expectations. Otherwise, it's one of those near enemies. It looks like love or looks like compassion, but you're really trying to control the situation. Yeah. Thanks, Mark, for bringing that out. Yeah, Ellen. so surprised by being a jerk or being an idiot or being mean because this is that what I was talking about earlier what equanimity allows us it's like that unskillful action those unskillful words that I spoke they arose lawfully according to causes and conditions it wasn't self it wasn't Mark being an idiot or Mark being mean it was the past arising in this present moment and expressing itself and we can care about that mistake, but we don't need the piece that you said, Ellen. We don't need to hate ourselves or have shame because we understand it. And that's why love really depends on the equanimity because otherwise we will get in shame. If it really felt like we made that mistake, it will feel so appropriate to be ashamed or to hate ourselves. But if we understand it in a deeper way, you know, well... That's the best I could do, you know, given how confused my mind was, given how caught up my mind was in anger, that was the best I could do. And I I forgive myself. I understand I'm imperfect. I understand that there is this lawful unfolding. I wish it weren't this way, but it is this way. Perfections, yeah. And just the lawfulness. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thanks, Helen. Anybody else? Yeah, in the corner. What's your name? Ella. Ella. Yeah, and feel free to use your own phrase, but that, you know, that works for me, so that's what I share. But <clears throat> because, you know, I've seen how. Uh, just in my own life, I've seen how wisdom arises. It's also an impersonal force, you know. Just like our ignorance, it's arising out of the past. Well, where does wisdom come from? Well, it's also something that's been set in motion through causes and conditions. And uh, this is what we'd like to arise in the moment, right? Wisdom is that force which sees things as they are, and then, of course, 
responds out of seeing things clearly as they are. So it allows for real skill in life because we're seeing things as they are, not as we imagine they should be or want them to be or afraid that they are, but as they actually are. And so we're skillful. So that's all we can really wish for ourselves or any human being or any being really is that their mind is in alignment with the way things are. Because we're all going to kind of traverse our lives, you know, in different ways. And, you know, we some of us may be in a tsunami and some of us may live, I just read someone died at 115, you know, and may be happy all those years, you know. And a lot of that we're not going to have any control over. But what we can, and what wisdom can do, is wisdom can keep remembering moment by moment by moment by moment that this is a lawful unfolding, that this is how it is now, that this isn't a mistake, and that rejecting it or grasping this moment doesn't help. It just hurts. So wisdom is what allows us to move through the life that's being lived without unnecessary suffering. Sure. Well, sometimes, you know, they talk about impartiality or balance. But it's the, it's the mind that's not confused by pleasant or unpleasant or neutral, right? So, equanimity, it's like an evenness of the heart and mind because it's not confused by when things are pleasant. It understands when things are pleasant now because it causes and conditions. It's not personal that my life is working so well. And then when things are terrible in our life, and unpleasant, equanimity understands, well, it's unpleasant, but I understand it's lawful. You know, it just causes the conditions. So I'm not taking the pleasantness or unpleasantness of my life personally. And that's the evenness. It doesn't mean I'm not receiving the pleasantness or receiving the unpleasantness. I'm not in denial. I'm really engaged. I'm showing up. But I'm not taking it, I'm not doing that self-referential piece. And that's what agitates the mind, is when our difficulty in life feels personal, or our success feels personal. And then we, you know, we build stories, basically, around it. Yeah, well. Uh, <coughs> That sounds great. So, we'll use the word gladness, which is one of the translations for mudita. Last week, I mostly used the translation appreciative joy. And the near enemy is exuberance. So, you need to find a way for that good energy that comes when you're appreciating your own happiness or somebody else's happiness. And Will was saying about using the sharing the merit or sharing the blessings practice, which is a great way to... Because the whole idea is... Is, you know, this boundlessness and immeasurableness that we talk about with these four emotions, it's really the same about not creating a self 
referential point. So if we keep giving everything away, our love, our compassion, our joy, our goodness, keep giving everything away, then there's no space in the mind that's creating somebody who's losing it all. You know, it's scary for us to give everything away. Some of you will probably hear Thursday night, Miyoshi and Kelly taught a class, a workshop on Tong Lin, this practice of breathing in the suffering in the world, exhaling our love, our goodness, giving it all up, giving it all away. It's completely counterintuitive, right? You know, normally we try to extract from the world anything good, you know, and then we give away our negativity <laughs> and our toxicity. And so to turn it around, and it, what it does is it, it really challenges the self-referential, the basic tenet, which is I have to be protected. So by giving away that goodness, sharing the merit, it's like, well, a frightened animal wouldn't do that. A frightened animal would pack it away in their den in case the winter's really long, you know. But we're doing just the opposite, where we're giving away. And that's where we find the freedom from self, all the weight, all the fear around self-referential tendencies, is by giving love away unconditionally, immeasurably, and finding that there's always more to give away. It doesn't actually run out. So this is a, a means for this awakening, like waking up beyond the limited sense of self. We live with a limited sense of self because we've created that limitation with our thinking. We've constructed a sense of being separate, apart, alone, in need, afraid of death. We've created all of these things, and they are real because we practiced them being real. And so we have to practice something else. And the loving-kindness practices are just that something else. I mean, there are other ways, but it's one means to practice going beyond the limitations of all of our self-referential tendencies. Any last thoughts before we do the sharing of the merit that we'll just mention? Yeah. I just wondered, is there guidelines for which of the four Whatever you're more drawn to, yeah, it's really okay to follow your nose, like what you like, or what feels uh, challenging, like a place in your life that, oh, I could really use this, you know. So I think that's really fine. And you'll find the more you do it, you'll find in your compassion, you'll find the others, you'll find equanimity for sure. And you'll find appreciation because it's a beautiful thing. So they're not really different practices. They're just sort of different angles on the same it's like that inner generosity. That's really what these are about. It's like discovering uh, the opposite of a, that inward gravitational pull of the needy self. And it's uh, giving away. So it's the opposite kind of energetic feel of a frightened self. And that's, you know, so it just whatever works, basically, or whatever we're attracted to. And again, uh, remember, Sharon Salzberg has a really wonderful reference book for all of these practices called, and it was in, I think, the first email I, I sent, I had the reference, that uh, Loving Kindness, The Revolutionary Art of Happiness by Sharon Salzberg. It's been around for years. It's in all the public libraries, and we often have copies down in our library that they get checked out a lot, so I don't know if they're there now. But we'll take the last two minutes and we'll just do that sharing of the merit. And this is something you can do every night before you go to bed. It's a good practice. So just sitting comfortably for a minute or two.
First and foremost, just feeling how wholesome it is to have taken the class, done the best you can to practice and learn what you can learn. Just feel the goodness of being here. And even more importantly, feel the goodness, that intention in your heart that brought you here that intuition that this heart is capable of real kindness and love and compassion and joy and equanimity. And we can recall all the simple and beautiful moments, moments of being patient when it would have been easy to be impatient, moments of Listening when it wasn't easy to listen. Moments of generosity. Just a sense of all the blessings, all the goodness in this life. All the wholesome actions of the past. May all of this goodness, all of this merit, Join all the goodness from all beings. This great, wide, deep river of wholesomeness. Being a cause for peace and freedom from suffering for all beings. May the goodness in my life be a cause for happiness and well-being for my parents all my loved ones, dear friends, all my teachers, all my mentors, and all beings without exception. May I always live in a way that supports the happiness and well-being of all beings. May this life be a cause for real peace and freedom from suffering. Here in my heart, and everywhere throughout the world. So may this be so. And thanks again everyone for coming. It's been really nice to practice together. Please continue to use the center in any way that helps. I think you all know, but in case you don't, we meet and do these practices the first Friday of the month. We didn't do it in December because of this class, but January I'll be out of town. Gail Iverson will be teaching the first Friday in January, and then I'll be here through the spring until May. I think I'll miss the one in May. So either I or Gail Iverson usually leads the Loving Kindness Practice Group the first Friday of the month, 7 to 8.30. And that's just drop-in, so you can just come any first Friday of the month. I think we won't have it in April because uh, we have a visiting teacher who will be wonderful. Larry Yang will be here that weekend, so he'll give a talk that Friday night instead. Thanks so much.